Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system, with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week, I speak to Sophia Buncey, the pioneering founder and director of the multi-award-winning Muslim Women in Prison project. The project was established in 2013 to document and research the experiences of Muslim women in the justice system. It now delivers a community-based, culturally appropriate service for Muslim women returning to communities after prison. In this episode, Sevier sheds light on the challenges these women face and shares how her groundbreaking project is giving voice to the experiences of Muslim women in the justice system. My name is Sophia Bunsey. I am the founder and the director of the Muslim Women in Prison Project. And can you set out to us what the challenges are and maybe why you decided to set up the organisation? Yeah, so essentially the uh, Muslim Women in Prison Project is a a grassroots community-led initiative. So um, I remember at the time back in 2013 when the project was set up, it was set up to support Muslim women who were returning to the community after serving a custodial sentence. Uh, And through my community development work at the time with Muslim women, um, I found myself coming into contact with Muslim women uh, who had served time in prison um, or I'd heard stories or read in the newspaper about Muslim women who had become incarcerated, uh, but they were finding it difficult to re-establish themselves back in the community and, and with families. And I think that was primarily because of some of the social stigma attached to being a Muslim woman who'd committed an offence. And in some cases, they'd just been totally rejected by, by their families and some uh, marginalised to a life of silence and, and having to accept that and just know that you would then be on the periphery of, of community and society. Others spent very prolonged sentences in prison and and lack confidence and social skills to adjust to outside life. And that, I guess, if you look at the context of Muslim women and family life, I think myself and and my co-researcher at the time, Ishtia, we were just fully aware that many Muslim women come from a very protected life. And so if a Muslim woman had become incarcerated and and went into prison, which in itself is a very protective life, 
um, when when they did come out, they may not have the confidence to, to navigate themselves around the system, to navigate themselves around families or communities. And, and some women obviously struggled with um, having English as a first language. That didn't help. So, yeah, there were there were many women at the time finding themselves in, in situations where they were very isolated, very disadvantaged. And so the Muslim Women in Prison project was set up to make appropriate interventions to help Muslim women resettle back into community life and mitigate some of those pressures and challenges. And I'd say the project has kept that as a focus. But one of the things we perhaps didn't preempt as much doing was the research arm of, of our delivery, which, which has been hugely important because uh, I think one of the things that really startled us at the time was the absence of information. What was the sort of numbers you were looking at or dealing with? Do you know how many Muslim women roughly there are in prison? Bearing in mind women make up, what, roughly 4% of the prison population. There's around 3,500 women in prison, aren't there? That number obviously fluctuating a bit. Yeah, so of those women, 6 to 7% are Muslim women at the current time. Okay, so, higher than I thought. Mm, again, a, a very disproportionate number compared to the, the numbers of Muslims within communities, uh, which, which is significantly lower. So there was a disproportionality then, and, and we see an increase in those numbers, um, but of an absence of, of their journey coming into the CEGS, an absence of information around their particular plights, their particular pull and push factors um, around their journeys. And I, I guess there's a very real um, concept around uh, Muslim women having to conceal and self-sacrifice a lot of their journeys and, and, and what they'd lived prior to entering the CGS, or uh, whether that was difficult stories of, of um, domestic violence or coercion or sexual violence, uh, there, was, um, there was a really you know, stark absence of conversations and an inability to disclose as well, which was even more troubling, uh, and sometimes an inability at, your, at their own expense which meant that, you know, they would conceal a lot, even if that meant becoming incarcerated and even if it meant doing quite a lengthy sentence. And did most of the women or uh, most of the women who you still currently work with, um, is sort of sexual violence or just violence quite a common theme in their backgrounds pre-prison sentence? Yeah, so we know across the board about 60% of women uh, across the board have said they've been victims of domestic violence. And with Muslim women, when when trust um, ensued and when, when we built those stronger relationships, we found that there was a significant number of them where actually they had also incurred domestic violence. And unfortunately, sometimes sexual violence, but within more of a, a family setup. Uh, so it could have been an extended family setup, but again, there was a real silence around that. Uh, it was shrouded in, in in a lot of social stigma and shame, and um, and, and you know, on on the women's part, uh, you know, their their sort of stresses around that not being believed if they did disclose. Uh, them being um, second guessed or questioned if they disclose, and and their self worth really. Um, diminishing if they did disclose. So there was this whole veil of secrecy, uh, which which was very, very difficult for the women to um, get past and, and, and to, to even feel like they were worthy of um, 
you know, you know, professing that they'd been a victim of this. I think many of them um, just had been told, and, and not just been told by, by the patriarchy, but, but put, told sometimes by other situations and had taught them and women in their community had said, just, just weather it, move past it, weather it, disclosure won't do you any good. So there was this whole veil of silence, it felt like, um, in those women's lives and within the community where there was, I guess, a... Um, in some senses, um, many other people who were complicit in that silence as well, uh, which was which was really sad uh, because then you find women who are very fragile, um, very vulnerable, uh, women who rightly so were suffering from from mental health, suffering from from loneliness, um, suffering, and, and those symptoms were manifesting themselves in so many other ways. Uh, and it was about us working with them as a project to rebuild that trust and say, look, that there is disclosure and, and, and in many ways a safe disclosure as well. And what does that look like? Uh, and what does building trusting relationships that are not conditional relationships or harmful relationships look like? So I guess there was this whole aspect of, of resocialization. Uh, and interestingly, within that, re-socialising uh, and strengthening and, and teaching women about their rights, um, using faith as a tool as well. So many of the things that were happening to the women were actually quite rooted in, in, in culture. And I was going to say, I imagine being in prison, I mean, obviously it's an isolating, traumatic thing to go through. But then if you're a Muslim woman and perhaps people inside the prison don't understand the you know intricacies of your faith and your culture you know that's doubly isolating isn't it and some of the things that these women will be worrying about might be different to the kind of things that I might worry about if I was in prison is that right of course yeah of course you know being in an environment and there's very specific needs that that Muslim women have um you know yes of course they're based they face many of the gender based inequalities which are common experiences that women have across the board um, but through our research and, and direct work with Muslim women, you know, we, we discovered how sometimes discrimination can play out for them. And, and you know, many of our women had faced discrimination on, on the basis of ethnicity or their faith or, um, you know, their gender, um, uh, as well as I think it was a double edged sword because there was this whole systematic inequalities of not recognising the particular issues impacting on these women. Um, but then they also experience that very difficult dynamic of family and, and community-based cultural biases uh, because of the social impact and the embarrassment factor. Like families uh, can be quite reluctant uh, to maintain links and provide support when a Muslim woman has become incarcerated. And that's more to do with this collective identity um, that Muslim women hold within families. It's not always about individuals. There's very much a collective identity um, and any, any breach of that identity, for example, uh, by a Muslim woman going to prison can sometimes have consequences. Out of interest, um, I remember when I worked in Nepal with women who'd gone to prison and often they were also um, sort of cast off from the family and sort of all but sort of abandoned. Um, the children also went with the woman, with the mother to prison and they were all cast out. What happens if a Muslim woman in Britain today goes to prison? Will the family keep the the, the wider family, maybe the husband and the the grandparents of the children, would they take them on? I mean, I know every situation is different, but generally? 
Yeah, in most situations, we do find that the children remain with the father, with the, with the family or extended family. So they are looked after, uh, but it's what that woman's relationship will look like with her children post-incarceration. And that relationship quite heavily relies on, on the decision of you know, most likely the husband within the family. So does he does he deem it fit for the children to, to now still continue to have contact with their mother who has, you know, unfortunately uh, brought disrepute on the family name? Um, is it a suitable prospect for those children to, to visit their mother in a prison? Uh, and, and even for many practitioners, I remember when I went to work in the CGS, it just wasn't deemed acceptable for me as, as a Muslim woman and a practitioner to be working in an environment like that. So we see withdrawal of children just because people do not deem that to be an acceptable environment um, or because their mother has now been really marred as somebody who is a bad, bad egg, has brought the family name into disrepute and the community name. So children should be kept as far away as possible from her. And in other cases, we see families that are quite supportive and um, you know, I know, especially in open prisons, you see this this difference between closed prisons and open prisons. I know there's been situations where families have, have been very supportive and, and in open conditions have taken children um, to see uh, their mother, Muslim mother in, in prison and have said, oh, mummy's um, working away or mummy's in a hospital, mummy's in a stately home. So these are part of the, um, you know, I guess some of the ways that these families mitigate um, where and how they conceal and protect their children. So as you've said, each situation is is very different uh, and it just depends on culturally how obliged uh, the family may feel or the husband, you know, who's, who's the head of the family uh, in making that decision. What is it that is pushing and pulling on his decision um, to, to, to take that particular route? Okay. And then do you work inside the prisons as well as in the community? Yes, I think this was one of those projects where we really had to have an all systems approach. And, and we find ourselves doing so many things, so many things that we didn't set out to do. You know, the research was part that were heavily research led um, because of, of, you know, the absence of voice, the absence of visibility. Um, uh, and, and, you know, to, to some of my surprise, even the absence of conversation around Muslim women prisoners within the women's sector, you know, and, and at that point, I remember when I first carried out the, the initial piece of research in 2013, I was very surprised to see that um, actually even the women's sector hadn't touched on it. And it made me question, um, I guess, do, do, do all women matter or why is it that this hasn't been looked at? Is it because it's too contentious? Is it because people feel like they can't get their heads around this? It's too complex or... Is it because they simply don't matter as as much as other women? Um, so I think that onus is on us to 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 really research and build content and knowledge around cultural and, and faith based practice, but also the support in women on their journeys is, is so important to us. So, you know, again, eight nine years in, we are based in 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 two prisons in the north of England. Uh, we still are continuing to refine our practice, work with women behind the prison gate, help them plan their journeys post-release into the community. And we have, as, you, as you're as you aware, a very specialist re-entry hub uh, based in, in Bradford at the Kidmat Centres where we welcome those women back. Um, and I think part of setting up, uh, it was a very brave move actually to set up a re-entry hub in a, in a mainstream community centre in, in the middle of the Muslim community. Um, but part of that was the community taking ownership and, and recognising the fact that we have uh, Muslim women who are becoming 
uh, incarcerated and they require our help and support because I think for a long time there was either a, a denial or people were oblivious to the to the fact that we have Muslim women in prison. Can you explain a bit more about the re-entry centre and sort of what it looks like? Is it sort of, you know, residential or what, what do you kind of do there? And maybe describe, you know, the day a woman comes out of prison, she comes out of the gate and could you then step us through her getting to the re-entry centre and then what happens there? Yeah, of course. Um, with the re-entry centre, it was, it was a very interesting um, concept for us because we, myself and, and some of my colleagues, we'd, we, we'd never had a reference point to build something like this. What would a culturally and faith-inclusive re-entry centre look like for a Muslim woman prison leaver? And there just wasn't anything throughout any of the other Black, Asian, I think, minoritised communities for us to reference. But having written for, I think, at that point, six or seven years, we, we very quickly realised we would have to move forward the recommendations of our own report and, as a community, take onus of what was um, what was happening and, and really to welcome women back and to demonstrate what that looked like. So we, we did a mapping exercise in Bradford and identified identified that actually uh, many Muslim women were saying, well, you know, we don't essentially want to go back to a women's centre, not a women's centre that overtly offered services for prison leavers anyway, um, because that would um, alert those that didn't know to their situation that actually they were a prison leaver. And I've had many conversations with women who have said, you know, even, even when I go to the probation office in town, quite overtly, that is a probation office. However, people have seen me walk in there and those people didn't know that I committed offence. So um, can we set up something within the community that's concealed and hidden, but very open at the same time? So the Reentry Hub at Kidmat Centres is, uh, it's, it's a safe space on our women's wing. Uh, women could literally be walking into our centre for anything. We have a number of services from educational classes, aerobics classes, jiu-jitsu, um, many, many things happen at the centre. So when they come in, um, it, it's not as apparent that they've come in to access a service which is for prison leaves. And I think safety was one of the most important features that the women wanted when they came back to the community, especially when they were saying things like, well, my crime was in the newspaper, I'll always be uh, readily identified. And I think we have to be quite honest with ourselves as well around how communities are set up and networked. Uh, and, and with Muslim communities, and certainly I know of South Asian communities, they, they do congregate in close proximity. And, and you know, th- th- there is a little bit of gossip and nosiness and people do pry in other people's business. So, um, you know, they, I think that was some of the anxieties that the women had, that I don't want people to spot who I am on release. or I don't want to be vulnerable in that respect. So the, the re-entry model that we did establish, I think that was a main feature in a centre that is an accepted centre used by all, but has its privacy for women. Uh, We have specialist housing advisors, benefits advisors, but there's um, particular features that we support women with. And one of the interesting features is that we have faith-based counselling and mediation services, uh, not just for the women as individuals, but also for families as well. So families that might be struggling to accept, you know, their daughter, their mother, their sister back, where we ask um, female leaders, faith leaders in the community or, or male faith leaders, if, if that's what it takes to, to come in and have those conversations about many of 
um, you know, the social stigmas and taboos that play out for women, which are actually cultural mal mal constructs rather than faith based. So we use tools like that specifically to move women on. Um, further education and employment is is immense as well. Uh, and about seventy percent of our women, our last report two years ago showed we managed to move seventy percent of our women onto further education, employment, and even as recently as um, the last two weeks, we you know it's been quite a journey, but we have a woman with lived experience who now works in probation services as as the uh, lived experience voice and lead. So I think for us, um, the, the biggest thing about the model and the greatest feature is that it is within the heart of the Muslim community. And that to me indicated a real acceptance of the fact that, okay, so, so we have Muslim women who have come out of prison that require our, uh, our help and support but we that model has never really incurred any any backlash thankfully we've we've been very lucky it's it's been quite accepted uh, and and much of our work is uh, quite award winning as well which in itself gives it um i guess there's an acknowledgement that this is an important issue um so yeah yeah that's that's what the model particular features of it on the architecture of the re-entry hub it's really interesting what you said about the women wanting to feel safe in the community and wanting to have somewhere that's kind of invisible but where they can be themselves it's a really interesting sort of thing to grapple with isn't it i know exactly what you mean but what architecturally does it look like is it on a street front and you go in a front door and it's kind of you know a building above or is it a standalone building or no, so we are, um, uh, we're a one floor building. We have our own secure car park. We're actually, we have quite a big centre. So within the centre, we have our own gymnasium. We have um, our own shower rooms. So we have three separate sort of uh, big cubicles and shower rooms. We have possibly about uh, 14 different rooms within the building, each with different provisions happening in there. So we, I know we've got two learning disability projects on site. We have elderly men's luncheon club, elderly women's luncheon clubs and day activity clubs. Okay, so it is also for people who haven't come out of prison. Is that what you're saying as well? It's a mainstream community centre. So it was really about... The space that the women use not being a space that's in isolation, it's a space that's a shared space and really epitomises the communities that they're living in. Yeah. Um, so it's about acceptance and being amongst the people that on a day-to-day -day basis they would live in um, and they would then share a space with them. And obviously we risk assess them and we security secure a lot of what we do is 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 scrutinised but it was about sharing of spaces acceptance back into community life and being able to access services and provisions safely within that centre which would be the first step for them as they re-enter society and communities again and I think that was very important because when we mention many of these Muslim women going from from protected homes um, into protected life within prisons but the the lack, you know, the lack of trust and the lack of social skills um, that some of the women had, or the confidence to be able to access services. For many of them, they they hadn't ever tried to access those services themselves because it had always been the father or the brother or the husband that did that. Um, and I remember finding that, especially when we're um, supporting women to access benefits, some of the women had never mentioned they'd never managed financial income themselves. 
Um, they'd never been in a position to do so. They'd never had to ring up the doctors and make an appointment. You know, they, they'd yeah. never had to walk into town. You know, they were always given a lift. They were always protected. They were always concealed. But this independent life could be quite overwhelming. Uh, but then if you have a look at the situations of some of those women who, who came to the UK as dependents, as spouses, um, you know, with, with a very limited education, um, or understanding of their rights, it, it, it very much made sense. Is there then a sort of cultural challenge around, so a woman in the Muslim community behaves in a certain way, she ends up going to prison, she comes out, she's maybe in touch with you guys and sort of working through things, and actually she's being taught how to live some more independently, being less reliant on the men in her life, perhaps, does that then cause trouble for them or for you as an organisation in any way? Do you see what I'm getting at? Does anyone push back and go, well, you're now sort of programming our women to live in a different way that's countercultural? Yeah, yeah. Some, sometimes that, that can be the perception um, that too many freedoms and too much awareness and too much information may give this woman her, this woman her own independence. Uh, and again, that is more cultural than it is faith. Uh, so we do find that in certain situations that, you know, parents or uh, partners can, can get a little bit nervous. But at the point that a woman accesses our services, I think where families are involved, we've, we've built a trusting relationship with families for them to know that we won't manipulate the situation or we, w we will have the woman's best interests at heart. But quite often those women that do access our service are those women that, that are on the margins um, and don't have the family support and actually they need to be equipped and they need to be upskilled in order to be able to, to really grapple with life and the realities of life and what they hold. So that, that for the woman is particularly helpful. But I think just the way we've, we've pitched the project within our own community because we always knew if there was somebody to win over, um, it would have to be the Muslim community on, on an issue that is deemed very, very contentious. We'd have to be very balanced in the way that we project and our approach. And I think some of our success rate with the women that we have worked with quite often helps us to banish some of those um, perceptions and, and myths around, you know, we're there to, you know, totally westernise these women and remove them away from Islam. And um, actually, it's, again, we use faith as a tool. I, I just think Islamic feminism has just been so, so helpful in us empowering these women and, and teaching them their rights. And, and, and as I've said, countering some of the cultural norms, you know, some, some of the perceptions that I've heard, even with some of my colleagues that I've, I've worked in the system, you know, that I first met and we, we were having those real conversations around them not knowing much much about the um you know the muslim faith and you know oh, is it your is it your role and duty to stay at home and cook and clean sophia are you being challenged by working as a muslim woman and you know for me to educate them and say no actually it's it's um you know perfectly acceptable as a muslim woman to be working and actually islamically it's not actually my duty to be cooking and cleaning at home you know the scriptures have said that is not my duty and financial independence is 100% advocated for. And these were the challenges that many of the women going to prison were facing, you know, the, the cultural expectation uh, of what their gender role should be 
Um, so where we can, we do use faith as a tool to, to really banish some of those practices. And, and there's nothing in Islam that says um, Muslim women cannot have their freedom, um, cannot work, should be financially manipulated and controlled. You know, if, if anything, I've, I have quite a, a joke with my colleagues and say, well, actually, um, you know, the concept of, of his money is my money and my money is my money is actually very true. Um, because, you know, that that's what ad Islam advocates, you know, on, on financial freedoms for women and, um, you know, us being able to earn our own income and 100% keep that income. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's been a very interesting project and it has helped to deconstruct uh, a lot of um, culture which was rooted in, in, in patriarchy and misogyny and very dated and, and controlling values. And what about the the prison staff? Are you able to train certain prison staff in sort of understanding the Islamic faith and maybe some of the challenges that these women face? I, I think one of the reasons we decided to 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 write and one of the reasons we continue to research and, and sit panels and raise awareness is really because we see some of the inherent challenges in the criminal justice that are, that are involved for the women, um, whether that is, you know, inequality, racism, Islamophobia or lack of appreciation of, of, of the severity of some of the social and cultural factors um, and, and the inability of some of these women to, to navigate the systems and protocols, both in prison and outside. Um, so I think just being within that space as a Muslim woman myself and some of my colleagues being in that space has really uh, challenged some of those officers' perceptions of Muslim women and, and what their role is and, and, and how that should be deemed. So we have worked quite closely with some of the with some of the other practitioners within our prisons. Um, we get involved with casework, interventions. We work very closely with offender supervisors and managers um, in educating, informally educating, Educating, uh, as we're in close contact with them. Uh, and I find that individual contact sometimes so much more powerful than just reading something out of a book or out of a report. Um, so, yeah, we, we have through through those means collaborated and, and, and shown some. We've delivered a lot of um, a lot more training, but I would say to people like probation service or women's sector around the challenges. Uh, and it's whether whether we think, you know, I, I know at this time there's a race uh, equality action plans being developed by HMPPS and the Ministry of Justice. So I think where we are slowly at a turning point, I'm hoping it is a turning point um, where there's a lot more that we could do. But I think we were quite honest with ourselves at the time and thought the real change will come from community ownership because the CGS just wasn't ready for it at that time and we were quite involved in the Lamy review at the time and, and I've seen that post um, play out some of the recommendations on what has and has not been met. So I think there is a lot more we could be doing in terms of delivering training or equipping officers. But I do think that's a work in progress. It's not something that will happen overnight. I think it is something that, that will take some time. Uh, and hopefully by uh, our staying power and, uh, and us being there, uh, you know, the, the, those institutions will recognise the value of what we do and bring to the table and what cultural uh, and, and faith specialist support looks like as well. And um, give me an idea of how big your organisation is. You know, how many members of staff do you have? Are you packing a big punch for your size? 
I think we're packing a big punch for our size, yeah. <laughs> in terms of staff, there is uh, three staff. So myself, uh, I have a key worker that works alongside me, Huda. Uh, we have um, my co-writer, interestingly. Uh, my co-writer since inception is um, a male. Uh, and, and that was deliberate. That was deliberate that I had a male co-writer. So Ishtiak still very much remains with the team. And then we have uh, three to four lived experience women that work alongside the team because we really value their experience and what they what they bring to the table. And those expertise are, are just something that myself and the rest of the team just don't have, but also very much admire the passion of um, of those women to, to give back. We do sit within a, a broader setup as well, though, Edwina, and the broader setup is we're, we're based within a community organisation that has a staff complement of about 28 staff. So, and I think that was very important for us because if in isolation we try to tackle this very difficult subject, I just don't think we would have got the momentum and the buy-in that we have from the community. It's because we're rooted within a, a, a community development setup and we are able to engage and avail a lot of the opportunities um, within that. So by that, I mean, in terms of partnership work, in terms of being able to signpost women. I think if we were just Muslim women in prison projects sat alone, it could be deemed um, too contentious to touch. Uh, and, and people would be quite fearful of, um, you know, some of the security risks around that or you know, do we really want to align our services with, with that? And, and I remember at the time when we were looking for a base, that was some of the very real feedback that we were getting from, from organisations that, oh, we can't house a project for Muslim women prisoners because it may actually be at the detriment of our other services. Is that purely because people just sort of, you know, sadly kind of go, well, are they in for terrorist offences? Yeah, in some parts, yeah, have they done something very extreme? And, and I know when I, when I um, meet people and they ask me what I do, or, or sometimes I give public talks, one of the first questions is, what, what are they in for? Is it because they've murdered their husband? So people will always go to an extreme crime rather than looking at crimes of poverty or crimes that are situational or um, crimes that are rooted in injustice. People, I think, have a perception that, oh, for a Muslim woman to commit an offence, it must have been something very, very extreme because Muslim women just do not fit that traditional stereotype or mould of somebody who would commit an offence. I think there is still that perception that Muslim women are very quiet and meek and law-abiding. Um, so, you know, it made it even more interesting for us to then research and, and think, so what, what was their motivation and, and what was the story behind this? So in, in many ways, that's what we do. We're storytellers. And, and, and we try and paint those pictures until we get to a point where women are able to paint and deliver their own stories. And because of that, do you struggle to um, raise funds? I mean, you're a charitable organisation. We are, yeah, we are a charitable organisation. And much of our funding, interestingly, has not been commissioned by the CTS. It's, you know, it's, it, as you know, the carousel of grants and um, hand-to-mouth fundraising and um, you know, it's something that we were accustomed to as, as as community workers. We were very much accustomed to that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it is unfair in parts, especially when you have something that is so specialist and something which is so pioneering and would give hope to so many other minority groups. But yes, we are on that carousel of um, grants, hand-to-mouth funding. You know, we're, we're very lucky to be supported by the Lloyds Bank Foundation at this current time. Uh, amongst a few of our other funders and they've really bought into the system change that we're trying to implement but also uh, our vision of um, you know 
raising the, the profile of this issue, but it being a solution based issue as well. Um, so you, I think you need funders that are um, ethical funders that see your vision and really help you to achieve that. Um, and again, many, many specialist organisations that we know are not given that support, they're not given the support to really be able to reach their full potential. Yet, if there was a collaboration or if there was that onus to do so, they could really achieve some groundbreaking um, you know, results as well as delivery models as well. Um, so it is, it is a labour of love. It is something that we work at constantly, like, like many other organisations do as well. So what are your plans for the future? What are your aspirations if you were to look at the next sort of five, ten years? We, we would love to maintain our services over the next five, ten years. Um, our aspirations have always been to really uh, build a model that really could essentially be copied and pasted up and down the country. So when we wrote our last report in 2019 and we launched it, it was based on our specialist reentry model. So the report was called Sisters in T- Desistance. Uh, community-based solutions for Muslim women prison leavers. Uh, And I think that came off uh, me and my colleague Ishtiak having those very open conversations around the fact that, you know, quite often black and brown communities are, are not best placed in terms of documenting some of, um, you know, some of the challenges within their own community. And quite often, because we're so bogged down with doing the work, we never really have the time to to shout about and and to really shine around what we've done and achieved. So that was one of the reasons that we'd written the report. and, And one of that the main reasons was to do with the fact that we thought this was legacy work. So you've touched on the fact that funding to, you know, black, Asian, ethnically minoritized groups is, it's, you know, we've said that that's not always, um, you know, it's not always forthcoming. Um, so we knew that we were in a situation that was quite a vulnerable situation and, and at any time everything could disappear. So what was the legacy work that we were doing? Uh, and part of that was research. You know, um, you know, my managers worked in, in race equality for many, many years, um, 35, 40 years and said, if there's one thing we must do, it's research and it's right. And so the person that comes in afterwards will not have to build another wheel. We will not have to recreate. They can pick this up and absolutely run with it. So I think some of our aspirations around research continue. Um, I, at the moment, where we are in an academic collaboration with Leeds Beckett and Sheffield Hallam Universities, looking at the model that we've developed uh, and looking at Muslim women in decisions. So we'd really like to see that really come into fruition and that good practice and example, hopefully having an influence over, um, you know, how, over HMPPS and MOJ for them to understand the relevance of what we're doing and to understand the importance of that. So I think in terms of our future vision, um, you know, it, it, it was really encouraging to see we'd impacted on academia and them saying outside of white working class men and desistance, we know nothing about you know, black and brown women and and, and desistances, especially not Muslim women. So our aspirations in research continues, hopefully to be empower other groups and organisations up and down the country to be able to set up what we have as well um, and them not having to learn the hard way and struggle. Uh, Interestingly, we've been asked to transfer the model over into the male estate, Muslim men in prison. So that is a huge, huge ask. And we know that the drivers to Muslim men and their offending and some of the support that they require on release um, is is extremely different different to that of women, and they're um, you know that that would be a real real challenge. But time and time again, 
um, that challenge has been brought to the table, not just from our own communities who are quite invested, surprisingly really invested in what we do with Muslim women prisoners, uh, but have real concerns. You know, we, we know about the, the huge disproportionality with, with Muslim men, and that's a worry. That's a worry for so many people. And, um, you know, we, we've had approaches from prisons to support them as well. With those approaches, have you had any offers of funding to, to be able to do that work? There is not yet a financial offer. <laughs> <laughs> there's just not enough hours in the day, Sir Edwin. I say this, there's just not enough hours in the day because, you know, the, the Muslim women in prison and having to navigate that literally is, is a seven day a week job. What's really interesting, I think also, is lots of people say this to me, kind of, you know, well, you know, it'd be great if you sort of did X, Y, and Z for the men, like it's like it's the same and you can just do the same job. And I go, sure, but we'd have to design that entirely differently. You know, we wouldn't just transfer the model for the women and put it out for the men because that wouldn't work, which is why we're doing gender specific work in the first place, right? And it's interesting that you've had the same thing. Hey, why don't you just do this for the men? It's like, right, well, that's basically like doing a completely different job. Maybe sometimes people just identify your passion and think you will find a way and you will make it work. And I think that's what really stands out about the Muslim Women in Prison project. It doesn't matter what time of the day it is that the woman needs our support or um, what hour or if we can, we will. And if we don't go at it this way, we'll go that way. So perhaps it's our passion that people really, um, you know, resonates with people and they think, well, if anyone can, you can. But we also identify that we we, we, we occupy a very particular space within communities, within prisons, um, and, and now within academia that, that's allowed us. So the ingredients that, that we had, some were grown, some were already there and ripe, and we've managed to, to achieve wonderful, wonderful things uh, in terms of, you know, raising awareness um, you know, of, of around Muslim women and their journey. Um, and there's been particular acknowledgement around that as well. Um, so, yeah, and we'd love to go into a little bit more of the educate space, the training space. So other mainstream organisations would be able to work um, with this specialist group of women, but understand better um, that their plight and, and hopefully collaborate with us. So that's some of our future women there, uh, vision there. Um, and then at the same time, I think there's a lot of work to do yet, Edwina, uh, around, you know, acknowledgement of those inherent inequalities, uh, um, you know, that some of these women face. And, and, and the fact that the system that we work in um, has to be more responsive and has to be more representative um, of the ethnic and, and cultural makeup of the societies that we live in. Um, so there's change needed within the actual system that we're working with as well. So how can we support and help in order to do that uh, and, and help others to, to upgrade some of their practices to become more culturally sensitive? So there's a lot to do. There is a lot to do. Well, listen, Sophia, the best of luck with it all. It's been brilliant talking to you today. If anyone is interested to find out more, then um, we always have the footnotes in the podcast. But um, th just thank you so much. It's been really interesting talking to you today. Thank you so very much for really giving us the opportunity and the, and the chance. It's, it's um, you know, I know your podcast reached so, so many people and it's interesting to know who will pick this up and listen and, um, you know, it just takes that one listening to, to resonate and make a difference. So thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. 
Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 